This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with renowned football coach Michael Lofman. He discusses his work in decision making and how you can turn action into habitual ones, the differences in culture and how this affects both the players and coaches, as well as lessons learned along his coaching journey. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. Michael, great to finally be able to get this in the diary. I know that we've gone back back and forth a little bit. Um, how are you? Are you all safe and well? Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for having me um, on the podcast. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been hectic trying to fit both in uh, both our sides, but I'm glad now we've got some time this morning. Perfect. So I know obviously I've done a little bit of research on you and a, a lot of the stuff that um you you say and, and deliver the stuff really interests me i think that you know it's quite forward thinking and, and the wet where you've done it has also interests me for people that maybe haven't come across your work do you want to just give a brief summary of, of i guess some of the highlight stops of where you've been and where and what you're up to at the moment yeah so um so i played until i was maybe 13 14 i think i don't know the exact year that i had said i had enough but uh, kind of not that I fell out of love with the game a little bit, but also realized I wasn't good enough. So to, to get to the level that the next level that I wanted to play at or a good enough level to even make a career out of football. Um, but I was always pretty good at education, but I've been involved in football since I was three years old from my dad played, not professionally, but he played amateur. He also coached a little bit. So I was just, I was spent most of my weekends around football. Um, so a football person that, that then decided to go down the education path and um, did my bachelor's and master's degrees in sports science and coaching. At the same time, I was doing my UEFA qualifications, so I ended up with my UEFA A. Um, and then during that period also, I was working um, in the community initially. So doing like a lot of grassroots work and working with um, trying to yeah better local football at uh, all levels. Then eventually went to uh, Watford as a sports scientist for a year. Um, Tottenham Hotspur as a football development coach for three years. Um, Dagnan Ribbage, I covered a lot of roles from like under 18s all the way down to under 6s, under 7s. Um, and then did a college scheme program with them also. Then at 25, I had, yeah, my A license and my master's degree. And I said, there's no real progression here for me in England. So I went to Zambia to be a head coach for the, in a Premier League team there, which was a very daunting, positive, but challenging experience. Um, uh, at the end of that, I went to, I came to South Africa, was at Orlando Pirates for two and a half years as, a, uh, as multiple roles. So head coach for the under-23s. Um, assistant coach for part of it for the uh, first team and uh, also first team analyst for them as well uh, and then went to the to join the city football group um, at their club in Belgium and um, to work as first team assistant coach that's analyst um, and now I'm working freelance for a year to try and just kind of build up um, some areas of my life I want to put together before I go back into first team football so that's kind of a brief overview obviously there are lots of drama and lots of positives and lots of learnings in between but that's kind of maybe a synopsis of that no perfect I think that yeah loads of really interesting bits that we can pick up on I guess the first question for me is what made you at 13 14 I guess have the self-awareness of that you weren't going to be able to pursue maybe this to the level that you you'd hoped and is this something that you would say has been a common theme kind of going into your coaching career where you've been self-aware of areas that are strengths or areas for development yeah, I think I've always been pretty self-aware. I mean, even when I was quite young, I was quite like, I was always a thinker. I probably didn't say or do as much as I wanted to then, but I probably thought quite a lot. So I was always analysing situations. And I think maybe one of the blessings is just fortunately that I had through maybe childhood was just that emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence came quite early for me. So I could so I could work with a lot of players now that are 16, 17, 18, and they're really unaware of where they're at in football. Uh, and when the level they've got to get to, whereas I was quite aware to know that, yeah, that I was way off in terms of just basic technical ability that you'd want to be able to go and play in an academy at that age, for example. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure like what really triggered it. I mean, I know when I was in my primary school, when I was probably, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, maybe 10 or 11, like we had a lot of success as a school and I played every game for the whole season. And I thought 
at that point, I was a really good player. Then maybe as I got 12, 13, my body started to change. I started to grow quite a lot um, and made my coordination went. And I was just quite aware that at that point, I probably wasn't technically as good as the others. And it could have been a growth spurt thing. It could have been a mindset thing. There's a lot of factors. But I think, yeah, fortunately, as you mentioned, like the emotional intelligence thing was the self-awareness was really important to make that decision. So when you're looking at self-awareness now, because I think this is a you know a big thing within modern coaching of how do we make the players more self-aware so we can guide their development. The 17, 18-year-olds you, you mentioned a second ago about them maybe not being so so self-aware how have you got any strategies in terms of supporting them in that endeavor to become more self-aware I think there's two things that I try and use so one fortunately enough we've got video now so being able to watch yourself back is really really powerful and a lot of young players including adults even I see even myself now I don't really like watching myself back it's never an enjoyable experience no matter how many podcasts you've done or t or tv shows you've been on it's still a it's still a daunting task to watch yourself. So that's one powerful method, obviously, we can use now with players. Um, also, the second thing is putting them in an environment where they kind of have to be self-aware. So, like, if you're a grassroots player, and I was working with some grassroots players yesterday, um, and one of the things I said to them is that they're not going to understand their level until they go into a more challenging environment and find out whether they can survive. So, if they were seven under 17, for them, they probably needed to go and play in an amateur men's team or, a, or an academy team, a high-level academy team. And once they're in that deep end, they're very quickly going to realise, are they able to survive or are they not? But what we get often is players that stay in their bubble. So like a grassroots player that's been there for under seven and he stays in his grassroots team for seven, eight years. And he's never going to have the self-awareness to know if he can make it because in his group, he's actually striving or he's doing really well or they are doing well, whether it's female. Um, so, so yeah, one of the things is being able to stretch them and put them in a more challenging environment. Because one of the things with self-awareness is we're only self-aware in the environment that we're in. We don't think we need to be self-aware outside of that. And it's the same for coaching. So if you're the best coach within your environment, you will feel like you're the best coach in the world. That's what the feeling you will have. Because in relation to your environment, you are. But go into the bigger world or, and stretch that environment. Now your perspective has to change because you're comparing yourself to a wider variety of, of coaches, players, or whatever the, the context is that we're talking about. I think what's interesting there is for almost to get that, that athlete development, you need a coach that's almost willing to lose his best players every year <laughs> in terms of they have to be going, you know what, I'm, I'm happy for you to go and stretch. If it doesn't work, come back, but go and push yourself, go and try and improve. And I guess with the work that you've done previously and in the role you're in now, you'll fluctuate to what you'll get. You'll get some coaches that are really open to that. And they're like, yeah, we want what's best for our, our young players or whatnot. And I imagine you'll also have some coaches that maybe aren't so keen on that. They're like, well, no, we want to win the cup this year. You know, it's our, we lost in the final last year, that type of stuff. How do you manage that, that dynamic with those coaches that you're working with? Yeah, I think it's really it's really tough i think one thing is just having clarity in the purpose of what you're what you're doing and what your what your club is about or your age group is about and then being clear with the parents and players that that's the purpose so i've got no problem with clubs that want to win cups and trophies when they're in their youth development years if they're clear about that's the purpose because i think what's important is that the player goes into the club and the parent goes with the player to the club knowing that their objective is to go and win so that now when they do win at the cost of player development so for example it might mean a player being on the bench longer than another or the player is not pushed to leave, is pushed to stay. They understand that they, that's what they signed up for. They signed up for a club that focused on winning. And there's some great benefits to winning when you're in, youth, in your youth years, you know. Like, I'm still quite proud of the fact that when I was 11, 12, I've got trophies and I've got medals and I went to presentation evening and you get player of the year and all those things. They're a good experience for a child. So if that's, as long as there's, there's clarity in that, I don't think there's a problem. I think the problem comes when there's a coach who says he's about player development or says they're about player development. Um, and then you get um, players that now go there and then the coach now decides actually he wants to win the game or he's more focused on winning the trophy at the end of the season. And now the players that went there because the coach said it's about player development now lose out because they're thinking the coach is trying to help them get better, but really they're trying to win games. And also vice versa, that the, the, the environment was the player comes in wanting to win trophies and now the coach makes it about player development. And he's pushing the individual so much, but the player just went there to go and win and try and have fun. So it's about that clarity for me. I'm trying to help coaches build that clarity by being aware themselves as a coach of what they really want, not what they say they want, what they really want inside. 
and trying to align that with the players that they recruit and the parents that they speak to um, and the promotional material that they send out. Do you think those two things can coexist? They can. I think because it depends on the level you're working at, but I think they definitely can. I think there's still is always going to be a bit of a waiting emotionally for the coach. I think there's a I think as a coach, they're always still going to have a preference, and most of them will lean towards winning. But I think there's and that preference and that emotional preference changes what we look at and how we see the game. So so you can develop players and win games for sure. But I think there's an element as a coach where the lens that he wears or that they wear, sorry, will be completely can, can be completely different. The lens that the coach has on when he's watching the game, is he watching to see the structure of the team and how the, the team is performing or is he looking at the key individual players and what those individuals are doing? Um, I think that's really important. So the lens changes. And when the lens changes now, you're going to get slightly different outcomes based on what they've seen because what they, they see is going to dictate what they then do and what they then say to the players and the information they give. So, so they can coexist. Um, and I think they'll always tilt towards one side slightly based on the emotion of the coach that's working with the players. I know there is some work being done at the moment, um, particularly at Southampton, having read a few articles around having maybe a game-based coach and then an individual development coach. Um, and I, I wonder whether what you've just mentioned there might be a nice dynamic to, to address that in terms of you have someone that focuses on, you know, the match prep stuff, the trying to win that game or, you know, whatever that looks like. And then you've got an individual who basic sole purpose is to try and improve the players so he isn't too worried about if he's three yards out of position and it, you know isn't going to be able to press effectively he's actually trying to look at well well no his target at the moment is to try and focus on his end product so he's done that five times out of ten which was better than last week so I'm going to praise him for that and imagine that that would be quite a nice medium for them to be able to allow those things to coexist as well. Yeah, I really like the idea. I also read the article and I thought, yeah, this is a really good idea. I think a really powerful tool. And the, the thing that will be interesting to see is where do they weight the percentage of training that's focused on either? So if you imagine you've got 12 hours in a week of training time, for example, now how many hours do you spend focused on designing the session based on the individual and how much do you design it based on helping the team? Um, so that balance will always be interesting to see and it'll be interesting to see if they just go 50-50 or whether they try in every single exercise, they merge both. But of course, when you merge two things, you're probably going to lose a little bit of one of the extremes. So I'd always look at it as a scale, like where do you fit in that scale of the percentage of focusing on development and focusing on winning? And of course, if you try and merge it, if you get a coach who just focuses 100% on winning, they should be more effective as a team winning, right? Same if you have a coach who's 100% focused on development, they should develop quicker than a team that's 50-50. But, but, but we don't know. I think there's so many variables in football coaching that it's hard to always tell and be sure of these things. But uh, it just sounds like a great idea. So I hope that uh, we'll get some results and we'll get some feedback from maybe Southampton on how that's going. Yeah, no, definitely interesting one. One area that I, I read up on and, and kind of and seen a few bits that you've done was around like the decision making process. And I think that's something that is inherently challenging for, for coaches to, I guess, one, qualify in terms of what is or isn't a good decision. Um, and then two, how do you develop that in players? So how do we develop the positive decisions if you like um obviously you've done quite a lot of work and research in this area with the book etc can you just talk through i guess the basic premise of what decision making players may look like in, in in youth athletes and then some of the the strategies in order to help them develop those yeah like decision making is a huge topic it's maybe one of the few that gets me really emotional like to talk about like it gets me passionate so i always try and stay positive about coach education and coaches and what we're doing i think when we go to decision making now, I think it's really it's a really different conversation. So I always uh, the game of football. There's only two things a player can control, right? It's the decisions that they make and the ability they have to execute them. So that you put those things together, ability plus decision making, you get performance. So then decision making is such a huge part of that. But I, yeah, I don't think as coaches we understand decision making. I don't think we understand really how to influence it and the factors that uh, influence decision making. So. But whereas we understand ability and a lot more. So you ask a coach at maybe most levels, the detail around passing, and then they can give you some of the basic detail around passing. But if you ask a coach about decision-making, it's kind of like a blank topic. Yet it's absolutely fundamental 
um, to obviously improving players. So, so I hope that in the near future, we're going to take decision-making a lot more seriously. Like there's lots of great books on decision-making and there's lots of research around decision-making, especially outside of sport. But it's basically focusing on the way the brain processes decisions and the things that influence it. So if we can understand, if we can understand decision-making, we can have a far bigger influence on the decisions a player makes. And that's maybe one of the areas that I find that when I've gone into clubs and I've worked with teams, I've been able to be very effective very quickly is by changing the decision-making process, just by understanding the things that are involved in that. Um, and it's very complex, but I think if we spend a bit more time focused on it, then I think we will have a lot more influence on what the players decide to do. Um, and then I think there's that the, the topic you mentioned of like good and bad decision-making again, which is like, we talk about making players make better decisions, but what are better decisions? Because a decision in one club that looks good, it's a completely different from a decision in another club. So how do we gauge decision-making? The only way you can gauge decision-making is based on having principles. And it's similar to life. Like for one kid going to university and one kid choosing not to go to university, how do you judge which one the right decision is? Well, the only way to know is based on the context of their life and their beliefs and their values and things like that. So until we can understand more depth around decision-making, it's very difficult to say this was a good decision, this was a bad decision, unless you've got that principles and, and those principles values to guide what that decision-making should look like. Yeah, I think that it's a really good point. The, the context is key. Um, one of the things that I'd seen that you, you discussed during a, during a pre previous interview was around um, the finishing um, finishing aspect of a, a boy that maybe has scored a goal using a specific technique and actually it was kind of a poor save from the goalkeeper. And nine times out of ten, the keeper would have saved that yet yeah, they'll get praise for it. They get positive reinforcement for using a technique that actually normally wouldn't be effective. Um, I thought that was a really interesting example because it, it's probably something that happens regularly, I'd say, from, from my experiences. It sounds like, obviously, with you doing research, you, you would agree that it happens pretty regularly as well. Yeah, I mean, even the coach education workshop I did uh, on Friday and Saturday, um, it turned into a big debate because it was actually some of the coaches were also teachers. So when I brought up this topic of do you focus and praise the, the process or do you focus and praise the outcome, it caused huge debate because I think from an emotional perspective of helping the player, if you praise the outcome, you're, it seems like we're helping the player because now they're happy, they're smiling, you've given them praise, we think their confidence is increasing. But if you imagine, as you the example, use the example you gave of the finishing, and then that finishing is actually going to be successful one out of 10 times. But in that one time they score, we praise the one time, then the next nine times that player now is, is going to struggle and we're not going to be able to praise them. Whereas, so if we see the bigger picture, I mean, looking long-term, we've actually got to praise the things that are going to give them long-term success in the environment, not short-term success in that moment based on the outcome that happens. And you see it all the time, like another example would be when the players are defending 1v1. And their, defending, their defensive body shape is terrible, but because of maybe their speed or their power or their or their reading of the game, they managed to win the ball back. And that worked at that level. But once they progress higher and higher up, once they now have to defend 1v1 uh, against a player that's attacking 1v1 who's maybe better than them, that technique they're using becomes really important. But we've been praising them for winning the 1v1 duels because they're so quick and powerful, but they get to a level where that speed and power doesn't help them anymore. It's not enough. And now we're not praising them. But so all that previous praise now has actually been a, a problem. It's been a negative long-term influence. Whereas if we were critiquing and perfecting it then, by the time they get to that top level, they may have missed out on some initial praise, but actually they've become a better player because they can defend more effectively 1v1. So I'm really heavy on being process-driven um, as opposed to being outcome-driven. Outcome How would you manage an individual who maybe has a, like an own unique style? So like an example I'd have is like Juan Bazaka. Because, you know, I think every coaching book ever would tell you don't dive in and don't slide tackle all the time. Yet wan is probably the best slide tackle merchant that I've ever seen. He, he seems to win the ball, you know, semi, well, not semi-regularly, all the time. So how do you go around managing that uniqueness um, within that? Because obviously... If I'm trying to forecast forward, I may say that his techniques might not work, but he might have found a unique style or she might have found a unique style that works for them in that context. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I think Van Dyke's also the, a great example, which I use a lot of when he defends 1v1, he almost turns his back and he's running towards his goalkeeper. 
So he turned, he over, he, what you'd, you maybe say is like overturning. So where we would traditionally say that you should be side on, he'll overturn, he'll actually be running back like he's going towards the keeper. But what it does is it means that he can accelerate as quick as the player with the ball can accelerate because he's already turned. So that's another example you give. And I think the key is trying to just challenge them as early as possible. So if they do have an unorthodox technique, like Ronaldo's free kick, you would have said is unorthodox initially with the knuckleball that he hits. So when you see an unorthodox technique, I think it's about understanding why they're doing it um, and getting and delving deeper to say, is there a reason why? So if Van Dijk is aware of why he was turning it, overturning or using his body to face, face towards the goal, you then get a better picture of maybe why it could be beneficial. But And again, it becomes another thing with coaching is that are we discussing these points with the players or are we just instructing them? So if we are going to coach a fullback to be better 1v1, it can't just be the traditional like our speed up, sit down, slow down, or slow down, sit down, the, the five S's I think that we used to use on our coaching courses. It has to be a conversation to say about, so I had it yesterday again in the session of, we were talking about 1v1 defending, hence why my brain probably brought it up. But uh, we were saying, I asked them, do you force onto their weaker foot um, or do you force away from the goal? Because sometimes they're two contradictory principles, which one is the right one? And the answer is that you obviously for keep them away from danger and force them into opportunity to regain the ball. They're two principles, but they're not answers. So it's not saying always force onto the weaker foot because sometimes their weaker foot is actually still dangerous. So you force onto the weaker foot and they still create chances or score goals. So it's about teaching the principle and having a conversation to try and understand it. So I think in a Wan-Bissaka situation, it'd have to be a conversation. If he, they, they're diving in because they think that they're going to have success and they understand the principles of defending still. So for example, minimizing danger just as a core principle. And he's able to apply that if his technique is a little bit different and we're challenging him by putting him against the best wingers to see if that's effective, then I think it can be it can be useful. And I think also maybe a second point with that is there are going to be physical outliers. So Van Dijk as a centre-back for his speed and acceleration, for, but with his stature, is probably a physical outlier that we have to consider. Would they may just have a physical advantage above all the other players? Like Messi would be another example. Would another player, would, if he was a bit taller, would he be able to dribble and be as effective with the higher center of gravity, for example? Maybe not. So in those exceptional situations, some knowledge around how they can use that physical prowess is really important. And I guess it's, as you said, the conversation with the player there is them identifying why they're getting success or what the challenges may be. So, you know, if you're speaking in, in the finishing example that you had there of do you show inside or outside, you might go up against your opponent and say, well, yeah, actually he's really weak on his other foot. So I'm going to show him on the outside because I know that he's iron Robin, for example, you'd do everything you could to keep him on his right foot compared to his left because his left foot, as soon as he cuts inside would finish. But if you have Ronaldo, that's a different ball game because he can play off both feet. So I guess the identification of what my strengths are and then what my opponent strengths are weaknesses are and how we can exploit that and then you have to make all of those decisions quickly to then hopefully get a positive outcome at the end but there's going to be times where you'll get it wrong but like you said before the process of trying to go through that is is the important bit and there'll be peaks and troughs along that journey yeah the robin example is really interesting and it's similar to the gareth bell argument we had when i was on my b license i think like if the if you if you were to tell your fullback, look, don't let Robin on his left foot. Always force him outside onto his right foot. What do you do now when there's an overlapping fullback who's now more dangerous? Because if he plays that pass to the overlapping fullback, he's now going to be maybe one v one with the keeper or in the box driving towards the goal to slide it across. So, what's the answer then? Is it still keep him on his right foot and force outside where there's a fullback bombing on, or is it now change? Because you'd rather Robin shoot from outside the area than the fullback be in the box with the one v one with the keeper. This is why it's always about coaching principle and coaching about danger, opportunity. I try and use danger and opportunity a lot as two words, but coaching principle over coaching instruction because the context is always changing now. The best players in the world make the best decision based on that context, not necessarily based on the instruction that they've been given. So one of the things I've seen you mentioned during, uh, I think, a presentation was around like the logical side of decision making and then the habitual side of decision making. And I guess the pros and cons of both. And um, one of the things that really interests me was how you could train it to become more habitual. And I could be wrong here, but it sounds like if it's in the habitual side, that's when people experience the, oh, the game just kind of slowed down for me. 
I was just able to kind of make a decision that I thought was right at that, at that moment in time. It was just a natural thing. I didn't think about it too much. Again, I could be wrong. Correct me if I am. Um, so do you just want to talk through, I guess, both of those sides and then some work you've done ar around that area? Yeah, I think there's lots of argument about how the brain is divided, but I think fundamentally you've got like a logical element of the brain or logical component and an emotional component. They're both very different and used for different reasons. And there are arguments that there's more divisions than that. And it's not that simple, but fundamentally we have habits that we are less consciously aware of that when we act like the things we do every day, when we brush our teeth, that we're not conscious of how we're brushing our teeth. It's probably a habit after doing it for so long. And then you get more logical decisions where you sit down, where you stop and process uh, and think more into decisions that you make. Now, the challenge with football is that there's so many decisions happening throughout the game from the first minute till the end. Like it's a constant decision-making process loop that's going round and round and round. So, and with that comes, when there's, when there's a lack of speed and a lack, a lack of time, sorry, to make the decision, you, you will go to your habitual action. More often than not, you'll use your habitual, you'll make a habitual decision to solve a problem if there isn't enough time to logically process which one to do. And it's a, it's a sensible thing to do, right? If you haven't got the time to consider and weigh up everything, the best thing you can do is resort to something you've done before that works because you haven't got the time to sit there and go, oh, which one should I do? So go to something that you've experienced that works. So then that informs us that as coaches, our job is to then, in training, give them the experiences that show them that the decisions you want them to make work. And then that those decisions now can be replicated, replicated in a game. Now, one of the difficulties is changing habits. So it's one thing to form a new habit that hasn't been formed. So if no one's, if someone has never defended 1v1 before, and then you coach them 1v1 defending, our first thing is then to expect to just work in a game, but it doesn't work like that. We need to put them into her, a habitual, high pressure, high stress, quick decision-making environment in training where they resort to that, where it feels natural. I hate the word natural, but in their head, it's a natural reaction. So that then in the game, they're more likely to do that as a natural habitual reaction. But what we do is we coach logically, we coach them uh, very slow or in training and then they do it once or twice. And we just think now that's it, they've learned that. And they've learned it in a logical way, but they're not going to repeat it in a habitual way because it's something they still have to process until we can make it their natural, their natural reaction. The harder part comes when there's a habit they've already got, which is a habitual action. We now need to make, we need to create a new habit that is more powerful than the old habit, which means you've got to use a lot more repetition to make it a habit. There's got to be a lot more value brought into, into doing that action. Um, and we can do that through like hormone, hormonal things, not giving them hormones, but by giving lots of praise, you increase the amount of dopamine that the, will be associated with that action. So if they have lots of success in a moment, so imagine you teach a player to slide tackle, for example, and then in a, in a training session, there's a, you do a slide tackling exercise and then once he has this amazing slide tackle and he uses the technique you want, or the whole team stop and praise it, the coach praises it, everybody says how amazing it is, that's very powerful and now overcoming an old habit where maybe they wouldn't have slide tackled or they might have used a different technique to slide tackle, just as an example. So there's things we can do to now make that relationship between the situation and the action we want them to have more powerful um, so that they're more likely to use that as a new habit. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing is obviously trying to trying to understanding that teaching someone something logically does not mean they're going to execute it you know that you have to actually reinforce that and make that a habit before it's likely to happen in a game so this could be a challenging question to answer so if if we're looking at session design um around this how can we make our sessions more um more aligned to this so that they do get the ability to turn a technique or skill or task that we want them to complete more often and then obviously turn it habitual and how long would that process take normally or from your experience uh, the second one's a very difficult question to answer in terms of the length of time because it really depends as i said if you've got a powerful example someone's habits can change really really quickly so i'll give you an example if uh, like just a general world example if you were to be if you had a burglar come and you, you, you made a decision and you managed to get the burglar out of the house. Like you managed to fight him off based on like, I don't know, a punch that you used or whatever, whatever you used to get the burglar out of the house. So you've gone from like a really fearful moment to be having success. Whatever you learn to do there is gonna be a really powerful experience where now you're gonna remember that forever. And that is probably gonna become a habitual action the next time that happens because it was such a huge event. But with coaching and most of the football events, it's not gonna be a life-changing moment. So it's really difficult to change a habit 
in as quickly as it would be if it's a really emotional situation. That burglar example is really random now think about it. I don't know where that came from. But any example where it's a really emotional and it's like threatening your life, you'll quickly form and change habits based on that. When it's smaller things, you don't really, you don't really change so quickly. So like if I was to say, um, to change the way you brush your teeth, it would take a long time for that to become habitual. Actually, most of the time you start brushing your teeth, you'll probably even forget that, oh, hold on, I was meant to do it like this today. So, so it's really difficult to gauge time, but in terms of how to change it, the two biggest principles that I focus on when coaching to change habits is cognitive fidelity, which is basically making the, the cognitive process or the environment, basically the situation as close to real as possible. So, if you're talking about the left back 1v1 defending in certain situations, you want to change the habit of the way they do it, then try and put them in a similar area of the pitch with similar pitch markings around them against a similar style of opponent with similar centre backs around them and a similar environment so that it's now they process the game environment or the match environment as closely as they do the training environment. And then you're never going to get 100% cognitive fidelity because there's things like crowds, uh, there's things at like the time of day, there's a lot of things you can't change, but change as much as you can in the training to make it uh, realistic and then the second thing is just high repetition of the action so if you want to change again 1v1 defending because it's easy example after five repetitions it's probably not going to come become a habit unless there's a really key moment in there but after 25 30 you're closer towards creating making it a habit because at a neural level all it is is basically one neural pathway taken over from another but it's only going to take over from another when it believes that it's definitely worthwhile doing it. It's got to be a lot of worthwhile and a lot of buy-in for the, the brain to go or the neural pathway to say this one is better. And that's what you're basically doing is you're competing with neural pathways to say this new one that I've now taught, now that they understand it, I need to make sure their brain and them as a person believe that this is the best way. And that's kind of how you're trying to create a habit. So we had a, a conversation like this uh, or similar to this on my a license and it was around finishing so it was around trying to you know get better finishes because i think every every person in the room basically said we're really good playing through the thirds and then we get to finishing and we don't create many natural goal scorers if you like natural goal scorers um <laughs> in inverted commas but one one of the things that the tutors brought up was if you're teaching finishing do you teach them so they get the technique or do you teach or coach them um as it would be in a game so in a game they might get a maximum of five goes during a game for example if a good striker you might get five opportunities to shoot during a game um how would that filter into what we're discussing here because i'd imagine you know that individual is saying yeah well they only get five goes in the game so we should replicate that in the training probably counteracts some of what you're suggesting there is actually the repetition sides is is what's important to change that habit for them yeah no it's a great question and a, and a big thing that i think we've coaches all over the world are discussing it's like the unopposed versus opposed argument kind of thing of like do we do we go for the realism or do we go for the repetition but if you're very good at exercise design you can get a little bit more of both so for example with strikers if you're talking about finishing i'll often do a 2v2 small-sided game and the intent, and you might have lots of breaks and, and stone moments where you have to stop it. But in a 2v2, if it's a tight area, you're going to get lots of finishing, right? Because there's only two players on each team that can finish. But you're also getting kind of some realistic finishing moments because now there's pressure from a centre-back. There's a decision of whether to play the pass. There might be a striker calling for the ball. There's a goalkeeper involved. So there's now a little bit more decision-making. So I think, But I think the key really comes down to what problem you're trying to solve and what you're trying to develop and the individuals that you've got. So... For example, I worked with a striker that had, was excellent in unopposed finishing, the best at the club by far. But when it comes to game, missed tons and tons of chances. And why did he miss tons and tons of chances? Because a lot of his work that he'd done in his career was unopposed. He liked hitting free kicks. He liked staying behind and just taking some shots of the goalkeeper. But now when real life situations come and you've got the emotional element that comes in and again, to go back to the psychology, which I always tend to lean on a little bit, like when you're in a game situation and there's a, an opportunity to score, there's an emotional element that takes over because your brain gets excited by the opportunity to score. It's like it tells you that this moment is a big moment. So they need to be they need to be comfortable and going again, going back to habits of having a habit to use in those moments, because that's what's going to take over, especially in the moment of excitement. Like your habit is going to is going to take over straight away. So. In those moments, we need to have, they need to have solutions that they've practiced and had the repetition of, and it has to have been realistic in order for that to have success. 
But in other situations, you might get a striker who is good in a game, but actually they're and they score goals, but actually the execution could improve in certain situations. And there's nothing wrong in terms of doing unopposed exercises to get that repetition. And all you're doing in the repetition really is you're improving the myelination, which is like the coating around your neurons to now make that action more efficient. So the action might be more efficient, but the emotional component can ruin that, that, that efficiency. So you've got to have both. I think there's, it's definitely a situation where you need to have the two, but there can be a purpose just to use one or the other, depending on the context you're in. But again, it all goes back to context. And I hate saying that because coaches get upset with me. That, that seems to be the common answer is based on the context, but it really, really is. There's no right or wrong to say they should never be on opposed sessions or everything should be opposed. But I think uh, they both have their place. But with definitely without the emotional element, without the oppose, I don't think you're ever going to have a top finisher without a high repetition of being in those situations uh, in training. No, it's a really interesting point because I look at a sport like uh, basketball, for example, and I know they do loads of work during off-seasons of just shooting um, and they just get shots off. And then, you know, the, the, the narrative in the media is that they've gone away and done loads of work and their three-point shooting has become more efficient and stuff and I imagine the context that you, you mentioned there is they've done a load of that to turn it habitual and then your best players are the ones that under the bright lights where you've got 15,000 fans screaming at you at the away end you're able to do it under pressure um, and it's you know turning all that repetition practice into a session where they become opposed and are put under pressure to then hopefully get them to the point where when game time is on they're able to do it and I guess one of the upsides to basketball is there's what 82 regular season games in the NBA so they get a lot of opportunities to do it prior to getting into your real stressful environments of playoffs and all that type of stuff yeah I'm really big on looking into other sports but what we have to be really careful of the differences between the sports so basketball, I 100% agree with the example of how they, they, they do high repetition of their three-point shots, for example, to be better at three-point shooting in a game. But what we have to really be clear of is that in, in basketball, when you hit a three-point shot, if you watch a player execute the action, they repeat the exact same action from maybe only three or four different points on the field, on the, on the court, over and over and over again, which is exactly the same as a game. They'll be in exactly the same situation probably in a 1v1 situation because generally in basketball it's going to be a 1v1 moment where there's one person coming down to try and block the shot um, so you get a high repetition of that action but in football for a striker the variability in the execution of actions they need to have is so vast I mean there's hundreds of thousands of of types of finishes if you look at it from a context of the way that your foot might be planted based on the defender that's pressing you based on the midfielder that's coming back into the box to put pressure based on how many touches you can take into before you have the shot. So I think football, whether you've got a header, you've got a chest first, you've got a, it's, it's on the volley. You know what I mean? You're at back post, you're at near post, you're on the edge of the box, you're on the penalty spot. There's so much variability that that method is beneficial, but it doesn't follow through directly to football because of the variability in finishing. So if you're talking about penalties, for example, penalties would be just that it would be a similar example to the three-point shot in, a in terms of you're in one position, and I think I played a little bit of basketball and I'd watch a little bit, but I think generally like a player will focus on if they're playing at the point of the three-point shooter and that's where they shoot from, they'll have a high repetition from that point and they'll generally take most of their three-point shots from there. But the same for the corner. So I think the three-point contest they do at the end of the year, they've got those five points. I think there are two in the corners, one at the top and then two in between. And generally they'll use those points as like a reference. Say, These are the points we're going to take the three from. Um, but yeah, in football, there's just so much variability that I think is really difficult to, to just focus on the repetition of the action without all those decisions that come into play. So once that basketball receive, player receives it in the corner and they're going to shoot, they've only got one technique option because that's the one technique they use for the three. But now in football, how many different finishing techniques are there that a player has to have? If you just watch Harry Kane in the box, who might be one of the best finishers, and you were to go through I don't know, his last 200 goals, You'd go through and you'd probably find so much variability in the type of goals. But if you were to go through I mean, LeBron James's last 203 point shots, how much variability are we going to find? We're going to find three or four different positions and probably the same technique and maybe just a little bit different in terms of the way the opponent was structured. But generally, you're going to find so much continuous uh, repetition of the points that you can say that they could practice. But yeah, the, the Harry Kane example, there's so much variability.
think, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I guess it leads back to what you said earlier. It's providing the strikers with principles of how to finish and then allowing them to guide and discover their practice habits or techniques alongside that. So it, it might be, I'm a defender, so this, this could be a struggle for me. But if we're looking to that whip towards the back post, here's some basic principles we're looking for, which might be we're going to start it outside the post and try and curl it in using this power of foot. How you then do that from there changes on where pressure is coming from, the time, the distance, all that different type of variables, as you mentioned, which is really interesting. Yeah, it's a... Yeah, the final third is the best example because coaches are really good at build-up, right? Because you can give the set solution. Centre-back split, full-backs go high and wide. You have an overload. So if you, you tend to have an overload in build-up. So if you've got an overload, you can kind of instruct on when the ball goes to the centre-back, these are the passing options because we know if they, their player presses, it's like a little bit of a game of chess, right? But when you now get to the final third and attacking areas, now you don't have those solutions because now all of a sudden they've got the overload. So you don't have a free player to just say, like, find the free man as a classic principle. You don't have that. Now, a lot of coaches then, because of that, they go, oh, you can't coach the final third. You can't coach it. It's just natural. It's just something players have got or haven't got. I completely on the other side. I think actually it's the best thing to coach because it's kind of maybe the area where teams are least prepared to deal with it. Like the coaches are coaching the final third, defending and attacking the least. So it's maybe where you can get the biggest advantage by being able to coach the final third and being better at it because all the other coaches are not bothering to coach it because they don't necessarily believe you can coach it. You just do unopposed patterns and show them them and that's it. And actually the biggest thing, like I've done a piece of work that I don't even think I've actually shared it with anyone, but I probably should now I think of it, now I come to mention it. But uh, the most important reference for the final third attacking is the, the shape of the defenders, right? The, the shape of the defensive line. The, the shape of the defensive line is the biggest reference to say what type of cross you're going to put in the box or what type of through ball you're going to play, or what the strategy is to even beat the final, to beat the opponent in the final third. But we don't really coach the different shapes of a back four or a back five and what they look like and where the gaps are, because where the gaps are is going to help us identify where the space is, which helps us identify what the correct action or the best action should be. But because we don't look at it from that perspective, because we don't want to coach so much uh, variability or detail, I think we don't want to educate on, on that variability, I think we then struggle and decide not to coach it at all. I think it's really interesting what you said there. So I guess on reflection, I'd say that final third is hardest, if I'm being honest, which is probably why people don't cut, coach it as often because it's really challenging to do. Um, but also what you're talking about in terms of the spacing, everyone will discuss if the fullbacks wide slide inside him which is a common principle that everyone has, which if he goes too wide, sliding behind him. But on reflection, that's one of the few things that people actually discuss of, of the spacing, where actually, if you discuss, listen, if your centre-half is staggered, we're looking for a one-two rounding to draw him out even further to create that space. If they're too narrow and there's gaps between the full-backs and then the full-backs are defending very wide, we're looking for our eight and ten to drive into that space or... Again, there's thousands of variations, but it's really interesting that you highlight that, that actually there's a really common example that everyone that I kind of work with ever would discuss, but then no one really goes into the layers of detail beyond that to try and help the players in that aspect. Yeah, there was a period of football maybe a year or two ago. It's still happening now, of course, but where the, what I think what you're talking about was really prominent, where the wing of the... Wing fullback will go out to close the cross and then you'll slide it behind the fullback into that space for someone to run into, like your number 10 or your striker. And that became a really common trend. And then now the fullback stopped that pass. So the fullback would go wide, we would close the line. And then we went, oh, damn, what do we, what do, we do now, right? Because we haven't educated generally across the principles. We've just given instruction of this is the pattern to use. But once you educate... It's really easy. You'll see like what, what one of the things Pep did to deal with that was that once the fullback then closed, it was drive inside and then slide the ball, which is nothing complex. But because we didn't coach principle of, of exploring the space, we coached a pattern. You now lose out on, on, being able to co on being able to deal with those situations. And there's thousands of them, as you mentioned, like it's, there's a never ending list. But if you coach the principle, they have more access to the thousand. If you coach a pattern, they'll be more efficient at the ones that you do coach. But when they're not available, what do they resort to? So it's like that. That's the pattern versus principle argument that I use. Is that you can have a pattern and be really effective at it, 
Even you can have patterns in build-up, which are obviously more common and be really effective with those three, four, five, six patterns that you use. When those six are not available, they don't have anything to resort to. If you coach principle, you now open up a, a, a much bigger potential of what's available, but they're probably going to be less efficient at the task. So again, there's no right or wrong, but if you coach the principle first and introduce patterns and pictures as you go, if they, as long as they understand the, the principles, when those patterns don't work or the pictures aren't available, they still have principles to resort to, to understand uh, what they can do. So I'm, uh, yeah, principles and pictures combined or principles and patterns, however you want to look at it. Uh, and do you think this really can powerful. be transferred to a team environment? So this isn't just an individual thing. Actually, you can, you can teach the team habitual habits that kind of fit together, if you like. But no, I guess based I around that... principles, sorry, based around principles, obviously. Yeah, that, not, definitely. It's harder to get the cohesion, right? When you coach principles, it's certainly harder to get that cohesion as opposed to getting the pattern. So, but, and it takes a lot more skill to probably coach principle. And it's because anyone can see a pattern and instruct and say, right, you stand here. When the ball goes here, you do this. When the ball goes here, you do this. That's not probably so hard to coach. But coaching the principle is really a lot harder because it's like an educational process. And it's a continuous educational process because they're never going to perfect the principle the way that you want it. But once they understand it, you can build on that and explain further and further. So it's a lot more, uh, a lot more detailed to be able to coach. Um, but you can definitely get the cohesion. I mean, I think, obviously, again, it's based on context, but the under-23s that I took tactically were extremely cohesive. And I probably coached 90% principle with some pictures and patterns added in. But to make it more powerful to get that cohesion what i used to do a lot of was run a pattern practice so like unopposed pattern work and actually but let them run the patterns so they would choose based on the principles that we know of they would then choose the patterns to use and kind of communicate with each other and then when it will break down they'll discuss and say hold on but the principle is this so when i come in here you must then move into this space because that's the principle so they actually then start discussing the principles and have their own kind of cohesion that starts building as opposed to me saying right here's pattern one two three and four use these four patterns which now they're going to become quite instructional and rigid and then and they're not sure when to use each one um so letting the players run that has always been really powerful for me so i'd imagine that a basic principle that you're discussing there could be if the ball goes into a wider area in the final third um we want our we want that player to be in a 1v1 and we're going to create space for him to beat his man or something like that as, as a principle Yes, I, I try and keep principles are maybe a bit more vague, right? So my so my thing with principles, and like there's no right or wrong, I guess. I'm just explaining maybe the way I see a principle is that a principle is something that can be applied like in 95, 99% of the situations it's gonna happen. That principle can be used in the 99%. So similar to life, like if your principle is that I don't know, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent again, I'll start talking about too much society stuff. But if you have a principle, you can follow it most of the time. So say your principle is be a good person, right? Do the right thing in life. That should be like a principle you follow 99% of the time. Only the one time maybe is it the right situation to punch the guy back who hits you because you feel like in that moment there was a 1% situation that happened where you can justify and say, I didn't follow the principle because of X. But generally a principle should be applied a high amount of time. And ideally for me also, a principle can be applied whether you're in possession, out of possession, um or a set pieces so you your principle is for the whole game so for me again it's very personal to me i'm not saying this is the the right way but for me like i would coach the principle of opportunity of identifying and exploiting opportunity right because that can happen whether you're 1v1 in a wide area whether you're in a set piece you still want to identify an opportunity to and exploit that opportunity uh, and then whether you're high pressing it's still those words can still be used and those principles can still be applied so the situation with like the 1v1 in the wired area, I would say it's not necessarily a principle for me because it doesn't reach maybe that 99% mark because there might be a time where there's actually a fullback who's ready to overlap and there's a 2v1 and what's probably going to be stronger, a 2v1 or a 1v1. So that fullback, because of the principle of maybe the 1v1 of, of trying to create the isolation, that fullback now goes, no, I'm not going to go because the principle said use the 1v1. But in that situation, it could be more effective if the fullback went. So we're potentially using a principle that might not apply enough of the time. But I'm not saying it's the right or wrong because I definitely can't. I'm definitely not at the level to be saying this is the way. But the way that I use principles is can I use them as at such a core level 
that like in humans, we've got these core principles that go through us, hopefully most of us, I think a lot of us do, these core principles that can be applied across the game rather than just having in possession principles, out of possession principles, set piece principles, high press principles, because then all of a sudden you've got 30 principles for just maybe a game of football. And you go, even in life, it's hard to live by having so many. But if you can just have five or six key, like I have six of them that I use, and if I can use those across the game, it makes decision-making a lot more easier. So even when we do corrections, like a process where we review the game after, there's there always a, there's going to be a debate about what should they have done? Or should they have used the, over, the 2v1 or should they not? The answer is, let's go back to our six principles. What do our six principles say? They say, which one would have created the best opportunity for the team? They can then discuss and say, well, I think if I win, I would have created a better opportunity for the team. Well, then you're correct. That's the answer. They're, now they've got clarity in terms of what we do and don't believe. Even if they might be within that, there's a little bit of disagreement. Generally, we can tell which one is going to create a better opportunity or not. Um, but yeah, very personal for me, not for everybody, but that's kind of the way that I use principles. No, that, that makes complete sense. And please say no if you're not happy to. But... Or were you happy to share those six principles? Because I'd be really interested to see what they look like. Yeah, so I start off with structure. So my first thing, so I'll give you the six and then I'll just go through them. So structure is the first one. Movement is the third one. It's sorry, the second one. Uh, then I've got opportunity, danger and control as the next three that all kind of link together. So we're always looking for those three things. So uh, we, when, there, when there's opportunity, we want to identify and exploit it. So we've got to see that opportunity, whether we're in possession, out of possession on set pieces. Same for danger. We've got to identify a danger and deal with danger. And then in between those, there's got to be an element of control. So you can't always be looking for opportunity and then uh, obviously worrying about danger. You've got to have an element of where you're in control. And the last thing is execution. So picking the best execution for that decision that you make. And then those six now, obviously, as you coach and you go through and you explain and you educate, there's more clarity around what those six are. But first of all, you've always got to get the structure right. Because if the structure is wrong, there's going to be a low probability of success. Once the structure is there, there has to be the right movement based on patterns and pictures that you've uh, explained and shown them. Um, and then, yeah, then you get those three of the decisions that go on the brain. And there's a lot of like psychology involved in those three because like at a human's, I don't want to go too much into the psychology again, but at a human's core, like the core of the brain, through evolution, a human and even animals have always had to do three things. They've had to try and thrive in your environment through opportunity, which might have meant uh, identifying there's a prey they can go eat. So as a predator, they see a prey, they've got to have that emotional reaction to go and get that uh, prey. There's also got to be uh, dealing with danger. So finding the danger now and identifying like a predator's coming to get them. They must now deal with that um, and be, and there must be an emotional reaction to deal with that, which means they can surpass what they would normally be able to execute. Um, and then there's got to be a control element because they can't live in fight or flight the whole day of this danger versus uh, chasing something and then always hiding from something. There has to be an element of control now where they go back to their home or their base where they're safe um, and then they get their, their hormonal state and their, their state back to normal. So, so yeah, there's a bit of probably unnecessary history about why I picked those three and where they come from. And yeah, as I said, the last part is just the execution at the end of picking the best execution in relation to the decision that's been chosen. No, I think that's really good. And I think what it would help with is just simplicity for the players. As you said, having those simple things that they can break down where things have gone well and maybe where things have broken down. So have we done the first five right and then it's just the execution phase? Is it that I didn't use the correct technique to exploit the opportunity that we presented and all that type of stuff? So I think, I think that's really good. And in your experience, does this change um, from culture to culture? Because obviously you've had a lot of exposure, obviously within... Uh, England, etc. You've been out to Zambia, South Africa, Belgium. How does, I guess, how do the players that you're working with culturally change and does it affect um, what they do within these principles or what their outlook within these principles are? I think each country's got its own strengths and weaknesses across those six. And like the, maybe the biggest examples, if you see like England typically, and I can't speak for now, maybe the newer players that have come through, but if you think of like, I'll ask your opinion, maybe you could share what you think. But if you think of like control opportunity as dangerous, those three functions going on, you think England historically, maybe the last 20, 30 years before this new generation, where would you say they may be tilted on in terms of where they operated with the decisions they made? I would say a lot of it is probably coach led in terms of they'll have patterns which they abide by 
and maybe aren't yeah. as as free spirits, shall we say. If you had someone like Adil Tarapt and the media narrative around him, and again, he was unbelievable in the ball, free spirit, kind of the way that he played. I don't think, minus maybe Gascoigne, who was a real anomaly, we had many players that would come in and just adapt to what was around them and play accordingly, would be my opinion. Yeah, and if you go to now those three things of control, opportunity, danger, right? What was Tarab looking for all the time? Opportunity. He thrived off looking for a way to beat the opponent, get into the box, maybe to the extreme, which is the problem, especially with the English media of maybe being against someone who's always looking for opportunities because it comes across as what's selfish. It's this narrative of not being a team player, which in England is obviously you know, a huge thing culturally, of like being for the team and fighting for the team first. Um, so that going against that grain by looking for individual opportunities is a problem. But if I would look at the England team, typically they've always been worried about being in control and dealing with danger. But there've not been many players, and there's not been many England teams that look. Even now, the recent one, were they always looking for opportunities to attack and to and to penetrate and to be aggressive, or is it more a controlled mentality of let's be safe, let's be secure, let's not take too many risks? And even going on to coaching staff of looking at how you select your lineup. If you play with wing backs that are traditionally full backs, and then your and then your uh, your front, you only have three attacking players on the pitch that are, that are typically going to create and score. Your what are you going for? Is control and then worrying about the danger. And then you find that maybe there's other clubs in other countries around the world where they more on opportunity. So South Africa is heavy on opportunity. Like the players are actually always trying to beat players one v one. You get centre backs that are doing really brave things on the ball because they're more opportunity led when it comes to, to football. But and actually, what I found easier here is trying to actually bring the players a little bit more control and a little bit more aware of danger because they've already got that element of one v one excellence and wanting to beat players. What what I found more difficult when coaching players in England was actually trying to get them to take more opportunities and be braver and take risks because they were always control led. It was like like it was like the pressure was on to don't lose the ball, whatever you do, don't make a mistake. And I think even there's a even some of the FA stuff that I did when early on, maybe not so much now again, but there was a coaching session on final third creativity. If you go back and watch the session, it was all the time the ball was going wide to the winger and then they'd play back to the fullback and circulate and they're looking for this opportunity, but no one is really going to like actually aggressively make it or find it. Um, so, so yeah, culturally, I think that each nation has had their strengths and weaknesses, but a big difference between maybe where I've spent the most time of obviously England against South Africa. South Africa is definitely more individuals looking to thrive and show their individual excellence and England was definitely more team orientated and control orientated um, and safety orientated. So I think if you can get the balance right, so I think maybe more recently, the young English players that have come through are now a bit more opportunity focused, like your Jaden Sancho's, uh, they've now come through and now they're a bit more taking risks and taking gambles. And we appreciate that a bit more because we know it's what we need. Um, and then in South Africa, trying to bring that control element into the, the opportunity that they search for can be really powerful. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I actually had a conversation with a with a colleague um, last week on here, and it was a discussion of how I thought the the loan system within English clubs could be used more beneficially. And I think something like this would be great. Like if you've got an attacking player or midfielder that's naturally good at controlling the game and very good at you know your Makaleli role is is the way that it's phrased in terms of winning the ball and then keeping it. Can we put them in a an environment or in a country that looks to, you know, progress the ball a lot and looks to take risks probably more? Because that might make their game more holistic. The example I used was a centre half that's very good at defending but not great in the ball. Maybe if you put him in a third tier Spanish team, that's something he would learn. He'd learn principles of play within Spain that allow him to develop those skills. And what you're talking about there, I, I wonder whether, you know, that could be used if South Africa is very good at that or Belgium's very good at that. Can we place these players in those environments two or three tiers down where actually they're getting exposure to, in my opinion, the biggest contributing factor is culture and coaching of it. I think if you have a culture in society and in the coaching fraternity in that country that wants them to do that, 
that's going to come across in their sessions designs. Whereas, you know, here with all the health and safety we have in the UK and all that type of stuff, maybe naturally slightly more conservative. Again, that's going to drip feed into all the sessions you put on because you're going to think, well, what about if we lose it and all that type of stuff rather than, but what about if we don't? What about if he gets it right and we score? Yeah, 100%. And we, again, this is a conversation we had at the weekend on the coach education workshop where in the theory element, I was explaining this and a little bit, it goes back, it goes to definitely goes to society for sure. And it also goes back to psychology, but from a society perspective, I was explaining to them that in South Africa, like if you, if a player nutmegs a player, they call it Shibobo here, but a player nutmegs a player in a big game the whole crowd go absolutely crazy. And that will be repeated over social media. It will be repeated over the TV. It will be like a huge moment, right? And there's a lot of history behind it, which I won't go into, but, but that becomes a big, big deal, right? And maybe if a, play, if a team plays like that and has a lot of those moments in the game, but, that, but maybe they draw the game, the crowd will go home so happy with the team and the players. And the players get adored for it. The, the players that get adored the most in South Africa, Africa generally are the ones that have that 1v1 skill to kind of humiliate the opponent they're playing against in the moment. Um, so what I did, I explained and discussed this with the coaches. And then they understood and they were like, yeah, we agree. Like, this is something maybe we have to look at, not changing and getting rid of, because it's an amazing part of the culture, but under, being unaware of it as a coach to now try and understand when and where to do that and how to manage that to have effective players or more effective players. Then we went outside onto the field for the practical. Just set up a basic rondo as like a warm-up, nothing too complex. First minute, the coaches are all the coaches that I'm working with on the outside, they're all watching. First minute, play go, the ball goes through the legs. What happens to the coaches all the side? 25 of them. Oh, they're jumping around. And I said, look, this is the classic example. And I'm not saying it's wrong, because culturally it's a huge thing here, but I'm saying they've got to be aware of that. When they do that, what does the player try and do next time? He wants to put it through the legs again, or he wants to embarrass the player again. And because the excitement that comes in that. They now keep repeating those actions. So now that's really beneficial from an individual development perspective. So you get a 13-year-old here. I did a talent development uh, week about two or three weeks ago. And you've got a player there, loads of players there that are playing disguised passes in midfield in, in games for fun. They're, they're no-look no passes all the time because the no-look pass also gets applause. So now from an individual development perspective of building midfielders that can play no-look passes, disguised passes, outside of the foot passes, it's unbelievable. But then you get to a level of where it's about performance now and you've got to now manage that because too much of that can now become detrimental to the team winning. So finding that balance is really, really key. Um, but it's just interesting that you brought it up because we just had this exact moment just on the weekend where it was really clear to see the cultural difference. Now in England, no one would have reacted to that. It might have been a little, it might have been a small thing. You see sometimes like Sterling at Man City, I think, put it through someone's legs in training and people made a bit of a joke about it, but it wasn't this big, big deal. Whereas here it's a really, really big thing. But again, it goes back to history here of like what happened over the last 50, 60, 100 years in South Africa. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we, we understand that enough. I look at like different sports with your rugby and stuff and I think like the All Blacks is a really good one where people would love to have the, you know, flair and stuff of the All Blacks and the way that they play. But I do think, and Brazil's in football's another one. I think it does come down to, the, you know, the culture of the society that makes a difference to how people view risk and reward or how they view doing skills or to not so I think that's something that you know we need to get better at as a, a culture can we learn to drip feed those into our practice even this if it is something where you know what for a week or a month I'm going to play with real emphasis of going over the top every time there is a no look pass or a bit of deception just to try and get that culture within my practices oh, 100% really 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 important. I think like the word that I use to describe English football and it, maybe England as a society is efficient. Like we are very good at being efficient. Like we understand how to now, it's like, how can we be, and especially before it was like, how can we win the game the most efficiently? Well, it was turn the defense, get in behind, get them in the corner, get a throw in from the side, keep them in their half. You know, it was that mentality. I think, especially if you go, even if you go down to now the lower leagues, you still see a little bit of that. Um, but efficiency is at the sacrifice of creativity. You can't be both. You can't be efficient and creative because to be creative means you're not, you're going to have less repeated success, which is going to make you less efficient. Hence why we talk about, did do we create many creative players in England or have we? We've probably been limited by this belief in being efficient, but because we keep doing it at the cost of creativity. So to have a bit more creative players or develop more creative players, you've got to now accept that you're going to be less efficient almost in that 
in that moment. And it's the same for even us in our own work environments. You know, I find myself being really big on efficiency. How quickly can I do this task to get it done and, and out of the way well and meet the objective, but not really maybe being as creative as I could have with the task that I'm doing. A perfect, really good conversation. Listen, last question for me, which might be a challenging one, but who is the um, the best coach or player you've worked with or against and why? The best coachable player? That is a very tough one. Oof. The most coachable. Uh, I'd say Manfred Ugaldi, who is now, is now playing first division in Holland, but was with me at Lomo. Uh, when I was there with Liam Manning and Peter van der Veen in Lommel last season. He was just, the big thing, he already had all of the professional behaviours. I mean, and they taught me a lot there about professional behaviours being so important. I think Liam Manning is a great coach. He was, he's now MK Don's head coach, but he was head coach at Lommel when I was there. Um, and he spoke so much about professional behaviours. And once those are correct in terms of you turn up on time, your work ethic, all the controllable things that you can do as a professional, once those are right, it's now easy to now coach because you haven't got to critique them for being late. You haven't got to critique them for the language they use or their body language on the pitch. But once you attack someone personally based on their timekeeping or the way they're behaving, it's difficult to now coach them because they're already against you. But once the professional behaviors are right, you now don't have to worry about critiquing the person. Then you're only coaching the player and players don't mind being coached if they believe you care about them as a person, you value them as a person. So I think he's like maybe the best example that stands out. Extremely talented, but just had really good professional behaviours on a day-to-day -day basis. And that just meant, yeah, all we had to deal with was helping him from a football perspective in the small areas where he needed help, but not really having to focus on all those things that we end up spending a lot of time on as coaches. It was going to be my last question, but I've got to back off the, what you said there. So would you recruit players that have those professional behaviours or did you have a way of trying to keep them like in check was there a way that you made sure that the players were exhibiting those behaviors even if it wasn't habitual for them i think in an ideal world if you're a big club with a recruitment department you can really focus and say right we only want top professional players with top professional behaviors right in an ideal world every single player you recruit has that but the reality is football is still a, a technical tactical game primarily like if you don't have the ability uh, or you have a player with the ability, it's sometimes worth spending the time working on their professional behaviours if they're really talented. So you'll, you'll kind of accept a player, maybe like some coaches will be more accepting of Turap. He's a great example that you gave before. I loved watching him play. Um, where you'd be more accepting of that ability, but you then spend, when you do get Turap, you don't focus on the technical, tactical, you get those professional behaviours right. And you put the emphasis there because they don't have that, but they've got so much ability. So ideally, yeah, you always want to recruit perfect players with professional behaviours but sometimes you don't get it and sometimes you have to spend time working on that but then don't try and coach both one a big lesson I learned from my long experience was don't try and make them a professional and teach them professional behaviours and try and coach them on the pitch because sometimes it's a, such a confusing message for the player really trying to fo focus on one get it right get it to a level that's acceptable then focus on the other so try and go professional behaviours ideally first and leave the technical tactical and then as soon as, once you get those behaviours right, just are they on time? Are they doing extra training? Are they communicating with positive body language? All those things, then get the technical tactical right. So uh, I hope that answers the, the question. If we can, definitely professional behaviours. Perfect. Listen, really great conversation. Loads of great bits there. And hopefully we can, we can catch up again for what, one of these soon because we haven't gone through half the stuff that you've mentioned or that I've written down. But uh, really appreciate your time and hopefully catch up again soon. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.